You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Hope Bible Church Niagara. If you are a guest with us, uh, welcome. Very special welcome, or if it's your first time in a long time, welcome back. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Ross Kearney. I have the real privilege and accounted a privilege of being the senior pastor here in this church. And uh, again, if you are a, a guest here or first time in a long time, warm welcome to you. Love you. Just come say hello after the service. I'll be down here around the front. We'd love to meet you. And please be sure before you go today to stop by. There's a desk right at the back door there, the connection desk. There's some folks there that are eager to greet you, to welcome you, to, to give something to you. It might even just be a pen today, but who doesn't need another pen, right? But we'd love to meet you and to make you feel welcome. Or if you got a question about church, maybe you've been here even a while, and there's something you're wondering about, need some information about, the folks at the Connection Desk are ready to help you to answer your questions and to point you in the right direction. Church family, just remember that next Sunday is the last Sunday of the month, which means it's a prayer and praise Sunday. So in the evening, we have our regular services on Sunday morning, but then at 6 o'clock next Sunday evening, it's prayer and praise as we seek the face of God together. It'll be a special time of prayer, so make sure uh, that you are planning for that. Look forward to seeing you there and also, too, while we're talking about prayer, just wanted to remind you about something, or maybe you didn't even realize this. Did you know that at the beginning of every service, the first 15, 20 minutes of every service here, there are a group of people who gather together to pray for that service. So even right now, as we're just beginning, there's people just wrapping up their prayer time, praying for, for God to work in power in your life. And I just think it's really neat. They call it the war room because they're doing spiritual battle. And maybe that is something something that you would want to participate in. The folks in that prayer time are seeking God to work and power, and uh, we really believe we have seen God working here, and I think that, um, that the, the reason that we're seeing God do some great things these days in and amongst us is because we have a God who answers prayer, and we've got people who are praying. And so uh, I just, I'm just eager for you, I'm jealous for you to get in on that, to have a front row seat to seeing God work in power as you seek him in prayer with others. And if you want to be connected, you want to be involved, just one, one service a month even, just one service a month, uh, you just stop by the connection desk there and the folks there will point you in the direction to get you involved in prayer ministry on Sundays. Well, I got a personal question for you. You ready? A little bit personal, but I hope you're okay with this. You ready? Do you have a bucket list? Do you have a bucket list? You know what I mean by a bucket list? It's a list of things that you want to do before you kick the bucket. It's right before you die. You, a list of things, maybe places you want to visit, experiences you want to have, achievements you'd like to make before you die. Do you have a bucket list? You know, here, here in the West, particularly in first world countries like our own, many people have an underlying fear of missing out on experiences that can be had in this world. I was reading a book this week in which the author pointed out that there's a growing marketplace of websites and books and blogs and podcasts and videos that curate for people the places and experiences you must go to and have before you to waste time making a bucket list. You just go to one of these websites and they've got it all ready for you. What's more, that, that same author pointed out that this has sort of turned into a kind of pathology in our culture whereby people are anxious about missing out on life's best experiences. Perhaps you've heard of the term FOMO. Have you heard of that word? F-O-M-O, -O, fear of Oh, you've heard of this pathology. Well, it's so prevalent, in fact, the same author pointed out that psychologists at Oxford are studying this. It is so prevalent. And here's the idea. It's basically this. It's a big world and a short life. Big world and a short life. And many people really feel an anxiety or a pressure to squeeze all the thrills and pleasures and ecstasies that we can out of this life before it's too late. Now, as Christians, we have a very different outlook. See, the Bible teaches us that 
this life is not all that there is. In fact, we read in the Bible that God has in store for his people, for the followers of Jesus Christ, a life beyond this life, an, an eternal life, meaning that there is a life to come to which there will be no end. What is more, in Christ, our eternal life will be every bit as physical as this one, only immensely better. In the life to come, we will experience intense joy, intense delight, intense elation in resurrected bodies. And that's exactly what we're going after today, what the Bible tells us about our eternal life in resurrected bodies. We're asking the question here, what happens when I die? In fact, that's our series. We're teaching a series right now, going through a study on the afterlife, what the Bible says about what's to come after I die. And, and the Bible is really clear that the death of any human being is not the end of us. C.S. Lewis has said this. He said, you have never talked to a mere mortal. You've never talked to a mere mortal. This is a whole idea we get from Scripture that our existence is not limited to this life as we know it. There is an afterlife. Now, our focus last week and today is on the afterlife as it pertains to believers, to those who love and follow Jesus Christ. The Bible also talks about what's to come for unbelievers. We'll get there later in our series, but today, again, we're talking about the afterlife for believers, particularly your eternal existence in a resurrected body. A week ago at our first message, we were studying the biblical truth that when a follower of Jesus Christ dies, the moment they die, they go to be with the Lord. The physical body dies, the soul separates from the body, and that soul, the soul is you, you go, if you're in Jesus, you go to be with Jesus the moment you die. The very moment you die, you go to be with the Lord. And your body goes into the ground or whatever other arrangements you have for it, and you, your soul, goes to be with Jesus. That's the truth that we focused on that we learned last week. Now today what we're going to see is that while for a time you may indeed experience the separation of soul from body as you're with the Lord, in time though we're going to see that that body that was dead and buried in whatever state it's in will one day be raised. And your soul and body will not forever be separated. But God's plan for you, for your eternity, is that there will be a great reunion of soul and body. Only the body that you get, like the 2.0 version, is going to be way way better. And that's exactly what we're going to learn about here this morning in Scripture. I want you to turn with me to a very important passage of Scripture on this subject, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll spend most of our time looking at verses 50 to 58, 5 0, 50 to 58. As, uh, we're, but we're going to look at other verses in 1 Corinthians 2, as you will see, 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, just reach out. You should see under the seats in front of you, not too far away, there should be a Bible. Just reach out and grab that or ask someone to pass it over to you and go to page 904, 904. And uh, you will see our scripture text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, Paul the Apostle uh, wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. And um, if ever you are discouraged about your own local church, all you got to do is read 1 Corinthians and you'll instantly feel better. Because as bad as things may be sometimes in your own local church or in our church, it's just like you read 1 Corinthians like it was bad there. I mean, I mean, there was all kinds of problems in that church. They had moral problems. They had doctrinal problems. All kinds of things. And Paul was writing this letter to try to sort them out. But one thing they had going for them is that they loved Jesus. They love Jesus. And really, you know what? That's the thing you need to have going for you, is to love Jesus. And uh, in the midst of all the challenges and struggles, they still had faith. But still believing in Jesus, there was confusion. And one of the reasons there was confusion is because there was false teachers, very scholarly-sounding false teachers, who came into the church and were confusing the people, were actually teaching the people things that weren't true. And we see that Paul takes that on here in 1 Corinthians 15. And one of the things they were teaching that was false, is that they were saying that there's no such thing as resurrection. 
They're showing up at church saying, there's, you've heard talk of this resurrection, but there's no such thing as resurrection. They not only taught that it wasn't true, but they mocked believers for thinking it. And the church, the believers, the Christians are getting confused. You've got really smart scholarly people talking about resurrection that's important to Christianity and saying there's no such thing. And so Paul comes in and says, oh, there is such thing. In fact, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then not even Jesus was raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then we're all doomed. There's no Christianity. But Jesus has been raised. And then he makes this very clear point to them that not only has Jesus been raised, but because he's been raised, you who are trusting in him, you will one day be raised too. Look at verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers or brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, what's that? That's, that's this. Flesh and blood is what's sitting in your chair right now. It's your body, your physical body. He says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What's he talking about there? Sleep. He's talking about people who work night shifts? No, what's he saying? We shall not all sleep. We shall not all what? We shall not all, not all die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. So many will die. The dead will be raised imperishable, but they won't stay dead. And we, those who are living when Jesus returns, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, we shall come, then, it, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's the primary point of what we just read. God will give every believer a glorified body. God will give every believer. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him? Then God will give you a glorified body. That's the mystery he's proclaiming here. He used that word mystery in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. It's a, a mystery that we didn't know this until now, until Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and raised. Now this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, the Lord has shown us something. There's a mystery that's been revealed. And, and what is it? It's that we'll all be changed. There's a great change coming. We as believers change. The change he's talking about is this glorified body, this body that we will receive at the resurrection, in a, a coming day, God is going to take this dying, well, let there be light. God will take this dying, broken, there are people in this room. Good morning, good to see you. He will take this dying, breaking down body and change it into something that's emphatically not dying or breaking down. This is, this, this is theologians call this glorification, the doctrine of glorification. It's the teaching that we have in Scripture that you in your future as a follower of Jesus are making your way toward a day in which you will experience a radical transformation, a radical physical transformation. God has worked in you an awesome spiritual transformation bringing you from death to life. He's working in you an awesome spiritual transformation in that he is sanctifying you, making you more and more like Jesus as you grow in him. But one day what Paul is saying is that you are going to experience another level of, another amazing level, a whole other tier of transformation when he gives to you a glorified body and you are in 
the eternal state. This is what he is talking about. You and I, who die, who break down, who perish, will one day put on the imperishable. Those who are alive, he says, will also be changed, will also be made over. The reality is that if you are in Christ, you are making your, war, your way toward receiving one day a glorified body. Isn't that good news? It's amazing. Believers who have died, who have been, who will be raised and glorified. Believers who are still alive will be changed. They'll be the last generation. Question for you, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in him? Do you love him? Are you following him? If you are, this is your future. This is what's in store for you. Now, again, we'll talk about the non-believers and what's the afterlife, what the Bible says about the afterlife for them. But oh, friend, oh, friend, hear these verses, hear this text, and believe on Jesus and trust in him. For every believer, you will one day receive from God a glorified body. Now, this passage really kind of digs into this a bit, and I want to unpack it by asking and answering four questions. Four questions are, uh, why, how, when, and what? What will this body be like? Let's start with the, how, the why, sorry, the why. Why are we going to receive a glorified body? Well, because it's God's redemptive purpose. It's God's redemptive purpose. Notice back in verse 50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers or brothers and sisters, flesh and blood, this physical body, as we know it, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You are going somewhere. You are going into an eternal life that is imperishable. So this, this body we've got right now won't cut it there because it's perishable. So what's got to happen is I've got to put on the imperishable. Well, well, why is that the case? It's because that's what God wants. It's, what God, it's his purpose for you. It's going to happen. It's what's going to take place. Behold, I tell you mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Why will we all be changed? Because it's what God wants. It's his redemptive purpose for you. You see, the salvation that Jesus has secured for you through his death and resurrection not only saves your soul from a lost eternity, but also saves all of you from a lost eternity, body included, which is important for us to grasp because in Christian thinking, as we think, as we learn about the body in the Bible, your body is very much part of who you are. It's part of God's makeup of you. There is a distinction. We do have a soul, and we have this physical body. We've talked about that. When the physical body dies, the soul separates from the body. But God's eternal purpose for you is not that you would have an eternal disembodied existence, but rather that you, you're, you would be wholly saved, like entirely saved, soul and body. Only the body you're going to get in that day, you're going to like a whole lot better than one you got now because it ain't going to quit working on you. It ain't going to break down. This is God's redemptive purpose. Now, this, this runs counter, this thinking runs counter to some common thinking that we hear often in church and, and in Christendom that I think sort of undervalues the human body. Sometimes we'll hear the body spoken of as just a shell. Oftentimes, around funeral times, we hear that the body is just a shell. And I understand the point that's being made there. Again, the soul of the believer goes to be with Jesus. Well, the body goes in the ground or whatever other arrangements you have made. I understand what's being said there, but the body being just a shell. You won't see, hear me say that, though, because I think that maybe miscommunicates some things. Well, the body is, is God's gift to you. It's actually part of who you are. He knit you together in your mother's womb, your body, you. Plato, who was a very influential thinker in antiquity and still today, believed the body was like a prison. We can understand that, especially when you're ill, especially when you're suffering, especially when you have pain that's chronic, especially if you've got a body that's going to die. You can understand why Plato and others would think of the body as a prison. He thought of a death as something that sets us free. I think a lot of Christians, though, think a lot more like Plato than they do like, like the authors of the New Testament. Because while it's true there is a separation of body and soul at death, God's redemptive plan is for you to be wholly saved. 
body and soul. So your body's more than just a shell. God's got a plan for your body, and it's a good one, and you're gonna like it when you see it happen. Why is this? The, why is God gonna give me a glorified body? It's His redemptive purpose. How? How will He? How will this happen? How will He do this? Well, Paul tells us it will happen instantly, and by God's power. Instantly and by God's power. He's already said. The end of verse 51, we shall all be changed. How is that going to happen? Well, implicitly, God's going to do it by his power. But notice, too, the speed with which it will happen when it happens. Verse 52, see that first phrase there? In a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I'm so glad that Paul put that in there because sometimes when I tell people I'll be there in a moment, that moment's pretty long sometimes. They get distracted and sidetracked and somebody gets into conversation. But Paul's really clear here, isn't he? In the twinkling of an eye. Like, don't blink, you'll miss it. That fast, really quick, instantly, in a moment, the blinking of an eye. This change that will happen, there's so much change that happens in our bodies over time gradually, isn't there? And lots of it is regrettable. But in that day, God is going to work a sudden change, instantly, where you go from being you 1.0 to being you 2.0. And there's no changes after 2.0. Our glorified, resurrected bodies will happen instantly by God's power. When will this happen? Well, he tells us in the end of verse 52. See verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The last trumpet. The last trumpet is a symbolic reference to the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus. So when will this happen? This will happen when Christ returns. That's when he's talking about. That's when the resurrection will be. It'll be at the end of history. At the end of history, when that day comes, and when is that day? We're one day closer today. One day closer today, the return of Jesus. And when he comes, that's transformation day. That's the day when the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall all be changed. When Jesus comes, that's when. Now, this is the fourth question. What? What will this glorified body be like? And my guess is, is that for many of us, that's our highest degree of curiosity. Like, what will this glorified body be like? Like, will I finally have that washboard stomach? Like, will I finally look like that person I really wished I looked like? Like, will I have a full head of hair again? Like, will I, what, 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 will, what will I be like? What, what will that experience uh, be? Now, I would just say that you are not going to be disappointed with what God gives you. You won't be. But I do think that probably in the grand scheme of things, uh, what we might think of in our cultural terms of a glorified body might be different than what we would find in Scripture of that glorified body. But you won't be disappointed. It'll be far and away better. I think Paul gives us some clues in 1 Corinthians 15, though, what that body's going to look like. Just go back earlier in the chapter, way back to chapter or to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. Not going to have allergies in that glorified body, too. I tell you that right now. Claritin better get their money out of me now. Look at back at verse 20. Now, remember, the whole teaching, the whole argument is against resurrection. And Paul is saying to them, look, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then not even Jesus is raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, we've got no hope. But, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See that? He has from raised, been raised from the dead. Notice how he refers to him. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, in Christian thinking, death is nothing more than falling asleep because there's going to be a waking again physically, you see? But notice how he calls Jesus the first fruits. What's the first fruits? Well, if you, lots of you are into agriculture, you know that the first fruits is the, the first of the harvest. The first of the fruits is it's the first part, the, the first part of the crop, and there's lots more like it to come afterwards. That's the idea. So just as Jesus was raised from the dead that first Easter, the message of 1 Corinthians 15 is that in a coming day, you will be raised from the dead too, just like Jesus was. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, so Jesus first, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
Now, this is very insightful for me because he mentions that Christ is the first fruit, so the resurrections that follow are like the first resurrection, which tells me whatever this glorified body looks like, if I really want to get my best glimpse at what it is, then I need to look at the resurrected Jesus. What will it be? It will be like the resurrected Christ. That body, that, that resurrected body will be, that you will have, will be just like the resurrected body of Jesus. This isn't isolated. I'm going to show you that in a couple other places in Scripture. Have a look at what Paul says, told the Philippians. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, I got two sermons I'm going to preach to you in this series on heaven. I can't wait to preach those. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, so from heaven... We await a Savior. What are we doing right now? We're waiting. We're waiting. But Christians, we don't passively wait. We actively wait, don't we? We, we live for the Lord. We love. We go full out in the victory that he's given us. But we are awaiting for him, and he is going to return. Remember when he ascended into heaven, the angels said, just as he went, so also he will return. And he promised he would return. We're one day closer to that. And so we're waiting for the Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he'll do when he comes. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? So what will your resurrected body look like? Whatever it entails, it's going to look a lot like the resurrected body of Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, all those texts that talk to us about the resurrected Jesus get a whole lot more interesting, don't they? Because it's a picture of your future. Let me show you another text here. John says something similar. Beloved, we are God's children now. Isn't that a great word? We're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're reading about it. It hasn't happened yet. What we will be in the future has not yet appeared. But we know, we know that when he appears, when he returns, Jesus, when Jesus returns, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Your resurrected body, whatever it entails, whatever it looks like, if you want to know what it will be like, it will be like the resurrected body of Jesus. And Paul, in our chapter, says as much. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. You see what he's saying here? If you're a gardener in the room, you've got a huge advantage over the rest of us. Okay, where's our gardeners in the room? Hands up nice and high. Okay, so you got, you got, you're all over this text. Actually, there's fewer of you than I thought there would be. Maybe there's just some that don't want to bother raising their hand. That's okay. I'm cool. If you're a gardener, you know that when you go up to that garden, you take that seed out of the packet and you don't keep that little seed in the packet because in the packet, it will just stay that little seed. We take that little seed, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's zucchini you're going to plant. Maybe it's carrots. Maybe it's a pumpkin. You're going to take that little seed, and it looks as it looks, doesn't it? A little kernel of something. Some seeds are very, very fine, aren't they? And you take that seed, and you have a kind of funeral for it. You bury it in the ground. Some of you gardeners even say a prayer at that point, right? Which is totally appropriate. And then what happens? Well, what you hope happens, what you anticipate will happen, is that seed will transform. It doesn't say that little slivery thing. It doesn't say that little round nut thing. It doesn't say that little flat, oval-shaped thing. No, something happens to that thing. It, it changes. It sprouts. And in time, something comes up out of the ground, and there's roots go down into the soil. And you look at that. What was this little seed is now forming into something different. It's the same substance, though. The new thing comes from that substance, but it's changed, it's transformed, it's growing. It's something other than what it was. It still is from what it was, but it's something different. It's changed, it's transformed. Paul says, that's you. You're a pumpkin. Today, you're a pumpkin seed. 
but in the resurrection, you're going to be a pumpkin. That little pumpkin seed could never imagine bringing so much joy to pie eaters, but it will, and it will blossom into this great big honking thing that will win a ribbon at the state fair, and it'll end up on your plate as a delicious pie with whipped cream. It could never imagine being all of that. But then again, isn't it true that neither can you or I fathom what Paul's even talking about here? That I'll be changed never to die, never to be ill, never to suffer a fate that I dread, namely death. He says in verse 37, he continues the thought, he says, or it's verse 37, we just read, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but the bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is of the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's different kinds of bodies. Just look around you. There are, verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly one, another. It's verse 42. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown, that seed, what is sown is perishable. What is raised, notice, is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised, look, look, in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. When I read what Paul is saying here and I look at the resurrected Jesus, I can conclude that with regards to the resurrected body and this current body I have now, there's both continuity and radical change. There's continuity and there's radical change. Think about it. Think about Jesus. I mean, when you think about continuity, Jesus was physically, bodily raised from the dead. Now, it's important. Just track with me. Track with me. It's a very, we're walking on a very thin line here, but it leads to a glorious pot of gold if we stay on it. When Jesus was risen, the first evidence that he was risen was that the tomb was what? The tomb was empty. They went to the tomb and the body of Jesus was not in there because he had risen. It wasn't the case that they went and saw the dead body and then the resurrected Jesus with the dead body still there. Do you see? That's why I say that body, when we look at Jesus, we can see that body, this physical body that I have, while it's going to be radically different, there still is continuity. It will be you. You. You will have, in the resurrection, a recognizable appearance, I believe. I say that because we notice in the resurrection appearances of Jesus that he was recognized. There was occasions where we see that he was not immediately recognized, but we infer from the text the way it's written that that was the Lord keeping the others from recognizing him for a purpose. But invariably, his people saw him and ultimately recognized him. Remember Thomas, who was doubting the whole thing about the resurrection? When he saw Jesus physically in front of him with the scars on his, and his hands and feet and the scars on his side, he responded with this declaration, my Lord and my God. He recognized, you will be recognizable. Someone's going to look at you and say, you're different than you used to be. But you will be recognizable. You'll have a recognizable voice, I believe. When Mary encountered Jesus outside of the empty tomb, he spoke a word to her. Remember what he said? He said, Mary. When he spoke her name, he recognized his voice. I think you'll have a recognizable voice too. I think we'll hear that voice. You'll hear my, I'm sorry to say, you'll hear this voice. You're like, I know that voice from somewhere. And I'll be glad to hear your voice too. You'll have your personality too. Now, for some of you, just like, that's not good news. <laughs> Especially for the person sitting next to me. But you'll still be you. But think of it this way, though. Think of it. You will have your personality, but without the infection of sin. Wonder what you and your sense of humor would be like 
when you are completely free from sin, not just counted righteous, but imparted with righteousness. You know what I think? I think it could be a whole lot more funny. Think about your creative bent, your insightfulness, your love maybe of the arts, your mechanical inclinations. You will still be you. You will still be mechanically inclined, artistically inclined, funny, serious, witty, all those things, but without sin. There's continuity, but there's change. You'll have your own body. It will be vastly improved. You won't be disappointed, but it will be you. Jesus was physically different. We read of Jesus appearing places. As sure as we read of Jesus eating and cooking and touching and talking and walking, being physically, tangibly present, we also see him appearing in rooms. Passing through doors. Isn't that fascinating? That's a picture. See, there's continuity, but there's also radical change. Radical change. Paul says in verse 33, what is sown is is perishable, what is raised is noticed imperishable. So, So never to die again. You'll be indestructible. You'll be better than Lazarus. You know what I mean? Like Lazarus, you know his story. In John chapter 11, he died. He'd been dead for four days. Jesus shows up in the cemetery and raises him from the dead. What an awesome picture. Lazarus comes out of the tomb alive, but it was just merely a foretaste of the resurrection to come and a demonstration of Jesus' resurrection power. I say a foretaste because Lazarus still had this flesh and blood like we have, still had that perishable body, and eventually he died again. Although I would argue he was probably a lot less anxious the second time when he had been raised the first time. You will be raised imperishable, though. You will not go back into the grave, and that day when you're raised from the dead, you will be alive forevermore physically. Amazing. You'll have a body that's glorious. Notice he says, it is sown in dishonor, is raised in glory, but sown in dishonor. It is a savage thing to die. It's a great, great indignity. Let's just say it like it is. We're sown in dishonor, but it's not the end of our story. We'll be raised in glory, changed from the inside out, raised in power, sown in weakness, I mean, the, the epitome of weakness is death. Even the strongest, even the fittest die. I privately, quietly marvel at that sometimes. These Olympic athletes who are, I mean, just, just the epitome of health and vitality and strength and endurance. They got like resting heart weights of like 43. Crazy fit. And yet, and yet... Eventually, as way leads on to way, we all end up the same. I, I marvel at that. I, I'm bewildered at that sometimes. The death comes and finds even the strongest and shows us weak. But, but, what's God going to do? He's going to raise you up in power. In power. No more arthritis, no more diabetes, no incontinence. Never again will you face down cancer, ever. No disease, no illness. In your mansion in heaven, your cupboards will have no pills, no puffers, no EpiPens. I will not be taking allergy medication in heaven. There will be no wrinkles on your face. Isn't that something? No receding hairlines. No yarmulke baldness. No disabilities. And I do believe that there is work in heaven. We'll get that later in the series. I do believe there's work in heaven. But there's a bunch of us in this room that are going to have to find a different line of work. Because there'll be no need for nurses, no doctors, no therapists. Anybody who is a funeral director will be emphatically unemployed unless they find something else to do. Think about it. It will be a radically different physical experience. The reality is, too, is that the addicted will be completely free. The embittered will be at peace. Never again will you struggle to forgive. You will have forgiven. 
You will physically, spiritually be a whole better you and God will see it happen. 1967, Chesapeake Bay, a young woman named Johnny Erickson Tata dove into the waters, misjudging their depth. The water was much more shallow than she thought and she dove in head first and suffered a catastrophic injury that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. It wasn't long after that that Johnny came to know Jesus as her savior and now for over 50 years she has loved and followed Jesus. She is a artist, a prolific writer, and a great encouragement and blessing to the body of Christ. She's written lots of books. She wrote a book on heaven I commend to you to read. And in that book, she says some things that I think are worthwhile us hearing today. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's worth it. Listen to what Johnny has to say from her wheelchair, paralyzed from the waist down. She says, on a blustery November afternoon, I glanced outside my window and spied a fat, furry squirrel doing his autumn ritual collecting acorns. I watched him sniff each one, inspecting them with his paws, and then stuffing his cheeks with the tastiest nuts. Others he dropped on the ground. The acorns he discarded rolled around in the stiff breeze. I knew most of them would blow away. Others would remain on the dirt to dry in the chilly air. And a few, just a few, would take root under the soil. They would be the ones next season to sprout forth green shoots of new life. These were the acorns destined to be trees. I shook my head in amazement. If you were to tell that tiny acorn that one day it would be as tall as a building with heavy branches and thick green leaves, a tree so great it would house many squirrels, that nut would say you were crazy. A gigantic oak tree bears absolutely no resemblance to an acorn. The two, although related, seem as different as night and day. Somehow, somewhere within that acorn is the promise and pattern of the tree it will become. Somehow, somewhere within you, is the pattern of the heavenly person you will become. And if you want to catch a glimpse of how glorious and full of splendor your body will be, just do a comparison. Compare a hairy peach pit with the tree it becomes, loaded with fragrant blossoms and free, sweet fruit. They're totally different, yet the same. Compare a caterpillar with a butterfly, a wet, musty flower bulb with an aromatic hyacinth, a hairy coconut, with a graceful palm tree. It's no wonder you and I get stymied thinking about our resurrection bodies, whether or not our teeth will be straight or our digestive systems intact. 1 Corinthians 15 only touches on it. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It is sown. It is raised we may not be able to describe the changes, but we know it's the same it. You and what you will one day be are one and the same, yet different. Trying to understand what our bodies will be like in heaven is much like expecting an acorn to understand its destiny of roots, bark, branches, and leaves, or asking a caterpillar to appreciate flying, or a peach pit to fathom being fragrant or a coconut to grasp what it means to sway in the ocean breeze. Our eternal bodies will be so grand, so glorious, that we can only catch a fleeting glimpse of the splendor to come. One of the best ways to understand the resurrection is to take a field trip after the Apostle Paul's lesson in nature. Go and find an acorn on the ground. Look up at the billowy skirts of the tree from which it fell, and then praise God that so it will be in the resurrection of the dead. Can you now see why I enjoy dreaming about heaven? Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I will become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs with splendorous resurrection legs. I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Johnny, altogether a much brighter 
altogether a much better, brighter Johnny. So much so that it's not worth comparing. There's no way I can comprehend it all because I'm just an acorn when it comes to understanding heaven. But I'll tell you this. Whatever my little acorn shape becomes in all its power and honor, I'm ready for it. End quote. What about you? Are you ready for it? Do you see, dear friend, the greatness of the salvation we talk about at church? Saved, yes, from the wrath of God to come. Saved, yes, your soul from a lost eternity. But saved to a heavenly home, an eternal existence of joy and delight in a whole saved you, soul and body. Jesus is a savior. Jesus is a great savior. And that's what Paul talks about at the end of our, before the end of our passage. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, verse 54, then shall come the past that is saying, so come the past the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But notice, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us victory over death into resurrection life. And that's why he says what he says in verse 58. In light of all this that's true and all that we're promised, it ought to have an impact on what I do today. Remember, remember one of the key principles we're seeing in this series is that the Lord tells us about what's to come in order to impact how we live today to shape our lives. And that's where he goes in verse 58. In light of the promise of resurrection, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So be steadfast. In other words, in other words don't, don't wander away from these things. Be steadfast and be immovable. Firm in your faith, trusting in Jesus, laying hold of these gospel truths. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Since you're in a can't-lose life in Jesus, then work your butt off for the kingdom. That's what he's saying here. Labor, pour it all out because you can't lose. You get it all back and then some in the end. The final point that Paul's making is this, I believe. Since through Christ death is defeated, then for Christ life should be lived. Death is defeated, so life should be lived, loved one. Since through Christ death is defeated, then for Christ life should be lived. Since we are certain of victory in the Lord, it ought to be fire for mission. We cannot be, we cannot be like this ridiculous picture that was once painted for me. I've heard this illustration once. It kind of works for me. Imagine this. Imagine if Lazarus, the day he was raised from the dead, remember dead, buried for four days, he hears Jesus' voice, Lazarus, come out! And he staggers out of that tomb and they unwrap him, and there he is. He was dead for four days, and there he is alive. Sees all these people, his family's crying and cheering, and there's birds singing, the sun's shining. He was dead, now he's alive again. He's like literally got a second chance at life, new lease on life. There he is. Imagine how ridiculous it would be if there he is, raised from the dead, heart beating, alive again. If he looked around and be like, you know, I think I'm just going to go back in and lay down in the tomb. Can you imagine how foolish that would be? You, you've been brought to life. That's exactly what I'm saying to you. You've been brought to life, loved one. So live. In fact, I want to leave you with three pastoral pleas. Three things. First of all, be fervent. Be fervent. You know what I mean by fervent? Not fragrant. Be fervent. Be zealous. Be passionate about your life. You've got life. You've got life now in Christ and a guaranteed win in the end. Okay? The referee's already in the end zone going like this before you've even kicked the ball today. You're, you're going to win. You're a winner. So don't live like a loser. Okay? you got victory in Jesus. So, so live this life. He's given you life for him to live on mission. We should be so fired up about living for Jesus when we know that victory is sure. Young people, plan your life accordingly. Pl 
plan your life with the end in view. Since I'm going to be raised in the end, what then shall I do now? Plan your life accordingly. Retirees, retire accordingly. Since I can't lose, since I'm going to win in the end, how then now shall I live? What Paul says, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord where he's placed you on mission for him. It may indeed be a difficult season, but victory is sure. It is. Be fervent. Second, be comforted. There is great, great comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, the realities we're talking about today. In a short time, it won't be long now. It may in this, this season feel long. But when you get there, it won't feel like it had been long. In a short time, not long now, what we've read about this morning will be emphatically your actual experience. And I'm not just saying this and hoping it turns out to be correct. I'm telling you this because I believe with everything I got that it's true. In fact, there's many times when I am preaching in the funeral of a Christian, I'll say this. Say, I say lots of things the same, same way in a Christian's funeral. Here's something I will frequently say. Preaching these truths... The, the gospel of Jesus and the hope of resurrection, I will many times say to people this. I am not teaching you these things just to make you feel better. I am telling you these things because they're true. So there's reason to hope. See the difference? The world, we just, just grasp at anything that just try to take the edge off and the pain, and I get that. I, and I don't, I don't blame the world is lost and blind and doesn't see the truth. I, I, but over here in the church, over here in Christ, when you know this is our destiny, yes, there's sting. Death has a sting to it. And there is grief, sometimes awful grief. But there's also truth that for anyone who is in Christ, there is a victory in the end. Emphatically, it's true. So loved one, be comforted by truth. If you are grieving today over the loss of a loved one who you have reason to believe is with the Lord, then be comforted in these truths. Draw deep from this well. Let others know that you believe these truths so that they also can be comforted in your time. Be fervent. Be comforted that death is defeated. Not long now, loved one, you will see. Finally, believe. Believe. To the believer, dear brother, dear sister, let's believe this. We've, we've, we've got to believe this. It's in the word of God. It's here for us, for our encouragement and for our strength to lay hold of this as truth. And dear friend, dear friend, won't you believe in this Jesus? Won't you, won't you trust him? Won't you enter into this? What we're talking about today can all be yours too when you trust in Jesus, when you look to him and put your faith in him as the one who saves you, to tell him, Lord, I need you to save me. And I want you to do this for me. Let's pray together.